go off too well. Not so much. Who's Jay? Do we know who Jay is? Oh, I know who Jay is. I'll keep her secret. There's only 12 people here so far. How many on live stream? Uh, it only just got going, so two right now, but okay. it only just... Okay, we'll wait a little started. bit. It's COVID time. Everybody's supposed to be home. What else is anyone doing? <laughs> You're not supposed to be out running around. People have lives during COVID? I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> How, how could you miss an evening with Father David? Yes. <laughs> Scintillating. <laughs> Sheila, is that your dog? Oh, yeah. Well, he's having a conversation about it, yes. Sheila, say hi. Hello. Her new boyfriend. <laughs> It's her new boyfriend. He just has a really full beard. Let me show you all. Come here, baby. He's always right here. Oops. My little baby. What's your dog's name, Andrea? Her name is Artie. Oh. Okay, let me see. I don't have the screen on. Let me see the dog. Oh, show me the dog, Andrea. Sorry, I didn't get to see. Oh, there she is. Cutie. <laughs> People and their dogs. So we've a rather lengthy. We have a rather lengthy reading to go through, and so even though. Uh, there are only 12 participants here waiting. Maybe we should go ahead and get started. And in fact, I'm going to leave out, just so you know, before we get started, I'm going to leave out the italicized print, my little introduction. Um, when I reread it today, I, I didn't really feel that it helped uh, so much for the understanding of the text. It reiterates a lot of it. And I'd rather have the opportunity to get through the whole thing than uh, just to have me s summarize it. Unless anybody objects to that. We have a couple of people who just joined, so maybe just give them a minute okay. to make sure they get all connected. Okay, looks like looks like it's good. Okay. Shall you mute everyone? We'll get started. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back everyone to our monthly School of Christi meeting, the School of Christ. And uh, if you're new here, if this is your first time, we've been reading over, gee, I don't know, the last two years perhaps, uh, the writing of Romano Guardini, his work called Meditations Before Mass. And uh, Guardini wrote back in the 1940s, and I think in many ways, 
uh, it let him sort of slip through the cracks in regards to, I think, the depth and the beauty of his, his writings. He, and also in terms of what how helps us to understand a little bit about what the initial impetus of the Second Vatican Council is. I think one would call him one of the fathers of the council, so much as his thought reflective of what was written later. But uh, I think most of us would agree that there was sort of a breakdown in the execution of uh, the intentions of the, of the council, especially in regards to liturgy. Uh, but what we find in Guardini's writing is this beautiful uh, description of the, the nature of the liturgy as well as how it is that we participate in it, the, the attitudes that we are to bring uh, to, uh, to Mass, but also how we are to prepare ourselves beforehand. If you remember, he's talked about silence, solitude, composure, uh, everything from crossing the threshold of, of the altar, uh, the ways that we are to hear the word of God, uh, the uh, antiphons that are said at the Mass, the, the songs of praise, the, the Gloria. And uh, we're moving into uh, the second part of the book, uh, starting this evening. There's a little brief hiatus, if you remember, where he talked about the things that hinder us in our full participation. And uh, tonight, though, he'll begin with discussing the, the very institution of the Eucharist itself. And uh, this, cha this uh, chapter falls in the middle of the text. And in many ways, I think it's the most significant. Again, he writes in such an accessible way, in such a clear way, but without watering down things uh, in terms of substance. It's just beautiful as we go through it. And it brings such clarity that uh, one would think that the book would be read more often than, than what it is and should be, I think, required reading for every seminarian. Just a beautiful writer and captures so much in a few pages of reflection. And the title of this chapter is The Essence of the Mass, the Institution. So the institution of the, of the Mass itself by, by our Lord. And as I mentioned here at the, the beginning of the group, I'm going to leave off of my usual uh, uh, introduction to, to the reading. Uh, I, I felt when I was rereading it uh, in preparation for the group that it just summarized what we'll be going over again. So for the sake of time, since it's a little bit of a longer reflection, we'll just skip it this evening. We won't be losing anything, I don't think. And uh, we'll just move right into the text. Uh, multiple layers here. We'll just take our time with it and stop after every paragraph or so as usual to open it up for comments or questions. Okay. So again, we're beginning about halfway down the first page. The link uh, to the reading is in the chat section if you didn't happen to get it ahead of time. Cordini begins by writing, religious life is the life which ties man to God. It's not mere knowledge or experience of God, but actual union with him. God exists. Man also exists. But his existence is only through God and in his sight. From God to man and from man to God runs a bond more real and more vital than any bond uniting one being with another on earth. This bond between God and man, its effects on man's experience, thought, and action is our religious life. So already in this first paragraph, uh, so very rich, he begins by describing for us religious life itself. 
And uh, he'll break this down in the next few paragraphs. But here, I think he begins with what is most central and important for us as human beings, that our religious life is life in God. And it's a, a bond of union and communion with him that is unequaled in anything else that we might experience as human beings. And in fact, it is so deep and rich that it is what holds us in being itself. It, uh, it's in its very essence, it is creative, generative. And so uh, it's a, a vital union. It's a life-giving union uh, that, that exists between ourselves and God. And so we exist, he says, only through God and in his sight. So God turning his gaze towards us, his eternal gaze towards us, is what holds us in being. And so in a wonderful, beautiful first paragraph, he captures the very essence of our life and how we are to see our life as those who have been created by a loving God, held in being by him, and uh, given over to the most intimate union imaginable with him. And in many ways, if we could simply hold that thought in our mind, in our day-to-day -day life, I think uh, most of us, would, our demeanor would be far more joyful than it typically is, uh, especially uh, when we go through those moments in our life when it becomes very difficult to remember or see this when we've been suffering, uh, to know that God has created us for himself and destined us to, to share in that life and love for eternity. And so whatever might come to us in this life pales in comparison to what we've already begun to participate uh, participate in, and especially as we'll see within the Holy Eucharist. So after giving us this uh, brief definition, he breaks uh, down the religious life into two aspects. He begins by saying religious life can take a double direction. It can enter into our daily living and doing and struggling, into our relations with people and things, into our work and works. One man tries to fulfill God's will by accepting and performing his given job with a strict sense of duty. Another, reluctant to break a divine commandment, refuses to inflict an injustice. A third practices heroic patience and helpfulness toward someone in the love of Christ. All this is genuine religious life. All three attitudes are proofs of religious sincerity in them, religion has become the soul of daily existence, what scripture calls walking in the sight of God. So again, beautiful in its simplicity, but uh, capturing the very essence of our life as human beings. Living in the sight of God is a wonderful way of thinking about it, that there's never a moment in our day-to-day -day life that we are outside of the gaze of God. And simply the thought of that should shape and direct everything that we do, think, and say. And he breaks down this down into three different parts, that a person can uh, simply, in a kind of dutifulness, uh, in, a, in a strict way, seek to carry out the, the will of God. One can be driven uh, more by the desire to avoid injustice, and one could be driven uh, by love, love for God, than to reach other, out to others in compassion and helpfulness. But all of this, all these three things, in whatever form they, they take in our life, uh, amount to our walking in the sight of God. And this is legitimate religious life, Guardini is telling us, 
and not just legitimate, but an essential aspect, the opposite side, the flip side of a coin, if you will, to what he'll discuss in the second paragraph. And so he goes on, but religious life can also detach itself from daily existence and seek God directly. The individual believer may turn away from external doings and happenings to meditate on divine revelation. He may take his concerns to God. He may appear before God to examine his own acts from God's perspective and renew himself in virtue. Or a whole congregation may assemble in a room that even externally expresses its detachment from ordinary life in order to receive the sacred word, to worship God in common, and to place their intentions at his feet. So this is the other, the flip side, if you will, of, of the coin, that we our religious life is made up of our being attentive to doing God's will in this world, of serving others, of being obedient to his commandments. This is how we show our love, return our love for God in and through our obedience and our action. And the flip side of this religious life is where we get our strength to do that. And that's in and through our union and communion with him through our worship, through this common bond of love that we engage in, either through our private prayer or common prayer uh, that is set apart as he sort of uh, beautifully put it, I thought, in a room that even externally expresses its detachment from ordinary life. So in a subtle way, he's telling us that even where we worship, uh, this should be reflective of what it is that we're doing. It should not be banal or worldly. It should not be an auditorium uh, where the oratory used to have mass, but it should be someplace beautiful, like a chapel that uh, that the where the architecture is reflective of the very nature of our prayer and what we're doing. And uh, we, I think even this small little aspect of what we're reading here, we've lost sight of in a terrible way in the last couple of generations that our architecture uh, has become you know, stripped down from anything that is transcendent and leads us to God. And we can't expect but that that would have a negative effect, I think, upon our worship in, in the way at least that Gordini describes it throughout this reflection. So any thoughts so far in the, either the definition, the general definition that he gives us or how he's broken down things so far? He's always so clear and straightforward, but anybody have any comments or thoughts so far? Okay, we'll move on then. It continues by saying both forms are good. Indeed, they support each other. In the immediate religious act, man collects himself, enlightens and strengthened. He returns to daily existence with a higher degree of readiness. When he experiences what he experiences there in the way of work, struggle, and destiny causes the new need, which sends him gravely back to the sanctuary, there to receive fresh light and aid. The demands of daily existence on their part constantly test the genuineness of man's religion, enabling him to recognize mere pious sentiment and irre irrelevant fantasy for what they are. So interesting that we engage in our life and we seek to carry out and fulfill the demands of the gospel. 
And in some sense, that puts to test the, the reality of our faith, whether it's pious sentiment or fantasy, or if it's something real. And uh, the reality of it is what throws us back to our worship and our seeking out to, to live the gospel in its fullness. We come to the, the quick realization that we are incapable of doing this in accord with our own strength and ability. It's only by the light, the love, the grace that we receive from God that we are able to, to live the life that he's called us to. And so our seeking out to live the gospel immediately drives us back to our worship of God, to, to the life of prayer. And so there should be this constant movement in our life of receiving love and giving love, receiving love from God and then and giving it to others. And so we're not called simply to you know, mere human love and affection and to bear witness to that into the world, but divine love, the self-emptying love that we see on the cross and the Holy Eucharist. And uh, when we seek to do that, that and fill our poverty, uh, it drives us back to where we need to be. Holy Mass belongs to the second category of religious life. It's not only one of the ways of turning directly to God, but is the heart of direct relationship between God and believer. When the Christian goes to church, he leaves the world of ordinary human existence behind and steps into the hallowed spot set apart for God. There he remains with others of the congregation, a living offerer of the sacred service celebrated before God's countenance. So Mass is not something that we are to see as, as equal to other activities in our lives, even religious activities. The Mass is the, the very heart of our life and existence. Uh, this is the council would put the source and summit of our, our life as Christian men and women. And we've spoken many times before about living from Eucharist to Eucharist. And I think we get a sense of that in how Guardini is articulating it uh, in this brief reflection, that our experience of that love drives us out into the world to love as Christ loved. But when we empty ourselves out completely as he, uh, as he did, then we, immediately we are drawn back to the altar to be strengthened once again by his grace. And the clearer that we have this in our mind, then our whole life, it sort of fits in well with our study of Theophan the Recluse this past week, who uh, talked exactly about this, of moving from fasting to confession of our sins to communion. And that eventually we look for in our life in our life, a continuous expression of this. We, we move from uh, developing this hunger of God within us on a bodily le level. So our whole being hungers and thirsts for God. We confess our sins in order that we might be free from anything that would be an impediment to that communion. And then we enter into the reception of the divine mysteries. And it is this reality that we are to seek to enter into in a constant way in our life. So we begin to live and pray as if this is the, really at the very heart of our existence. It's not as though it makes other things unimportant in our life, but everything is to be shaped by this greater reality of our religious life. Everything is subordinate 
to, to the life of religion, as it were. That it's our, our bond with God that is to shape everything. And outside of that, our, our life loses its meaning. We might do the greatest things in the world, but if it's not driven by this love, if it doesn't have a piety that, that arises from uh, the heart and is a desire to return that love to God, then it loses its meaning. Uh, St. John Vianney said something similar. All that is not offered to God is wasted. And so to do things outside of the context of the reality of who we are as human beings, as created by God and in the sight of God, we are to act in a way that is estranged from the self. That we might be doing all these things and even pouring ourselves out in great measure in our life, but have uh, a mistaken notion of our identity to such an extent that life eventually begins to unravel for us. I think when we lose uh, sight of this connection with God, essential connection with God, even if we're seeking to live a good and moral life, uh, eventually things begin to break down because we aren't returning to this union communion from which we receive our strength. And so eventually our knees will buckle underneath the weight and the reality of living in a fallen world, seeking to love as Christ has loved us. Okay, any comments or questions up to this point? Beautifully written. I, Go ahead. I, I do have a question. Okay. Um, this is Anna. And um, my question is, when I go to Mass, um, for me it's much easier to um, leave Mass um, you know, full of the Holy Spirit because of Scripture rather than the communion part, which is supposed to be, you know, an essential part because it's the sacrament. But I don't understand exactly, besides the fact that I understand that the presence of Jesus himself is there, like, what should I be acknowledging as I am uh, taking communion? What should we acknowledging? I think... Um, I mean, I just, I don't think I've ever been explained exactly why is it food for me. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I think I've often, you know, I think on one level, I'll approach it in a couple different ways. You know, one of the reasons that we would fast in preparation is that we make a conscious link uh, between our experience of bodily hunger and desire and our hunger and and longing for he who is the bread of life he who nourishes us upon his love and over the course of time that conscious connection is to deepen for us and that we make that association with receiving of the holy eucharist we were receiving the bread of life that we are receiving the one who nourishes us upon himself his life and love and so sustains us the other thing I think that we are to keep in mind and to be conscious of in approaching the altar is uh, twofold, I would think. The one that it's an act of consummation of Christ giving himself to his bride, the church, but also to each individual's soul becomes the bride of Christ. And so Christ gives himself body, blood, soul, and divinity 
to us. He gives his whole self to us. It's this act of consummation that creates a radical union and communion with him. And so we would be conscious of the fact that it's the most intimate moment of our life, of union and communion with, with God. And we understand that, certainly, I think, in and through our relations with others and the love and intimacy that we experience with others. But throughout the course of our entering into that communion with him, our experience of that intimacy grows by the very grace that he gives us. So over the course of time, our ability to give and receive that love in that moment of communion of receiving the host begins to grow. And so we should experience a deepening of intimacy that takes place the moment that we receive Holy Communion. Uh, and the other aspect of this, I think, is a self-offering, that uh, we are offering ourselves to Christ uh, when we say, Amen, so be it. And, and at the same time, offering ourselves to all others in union with Christ who are also receiving him. We are saying, Amen, this is the love that is going to be reflected in my life. This is how I'm going to give myself to the world. I'm going to empty myself out in love, allow myself to be broken and poured out in love for the world and for others, most especially those who are, who are immediately before us on a daily basis. So it's a, an act of proclamation in a sense when we say amen. We're saying it not only to God, but to all others who are members of the body of Christ, and indeed all others within the world, all those for whom Christ died. And so I think our experience of those truths deepens over the course of time. Uh, one of the reasons that we uh, have Eucharistic adoration and is perpetual here at the oratory is that we might linger uh, in that reality that I just spoke of, that we might gaze upon the Eucharistic face of the Lord in order that the idea of receiving the Holy Eucharist might not be something abstract and notional for us, but more relational over the course of time, real, concrete, and tangible. So our gazing upon the face of Christ as he gives himself to us in the Eucharist and his gazing upon us deepens that, that union and communion of love. And so as we then approach the altar to receive Holy Communion, the fruit of that adoration uh, begins to express itself more and more. We see with a greater clarity both the gift that is given uh, but also the, the gift that is desired from us, the gift of self. And so that moment for us over the course of time, if we are preparing ourselves in all these ways, fasting, confession, and then through the, our, our individual prayer, if we're preparing ourselves in every way, the, the intimacy over the course of our life should deepen and become more and more profound. And I think where we fail as a church uh, is to articulate this reality with the clarity that uh, Gordini does in his little ref reflections. 
the think again, if we simply had this understanding in our mind, and if we approached our day in this fashion, how, how deep our desire uh, for the Eucharist would become, but also how deep our desire to prepare our, our minds and our hearts to receive him fully. In a similar way, you were talking about the hearing of the word, that in and of itself, it is to inflame that desire, stir our desire for him, that we hear that word first in the proclamation of, of the scriptures and in and through the, the preaching on the scriptures. And that stirs our, our desire, our hunger then to receive that word in and through the Eucharist. We enter into, in reality, a radical union and communion in both ways, in hearing audibly that word as it's proclaimed to us, but in the most profound way, uh, in and through receiving the, the Lord and the Holy Eucharist. In fact, sometimes it's been referred to the, you know, the altar of the, of the scriptures and the, you know, altar of, of the sacrifice. And a lot of people aren't as comfortable with those images, but I think, uh, they express something similar, that God has emptied himself, took our flesh upon himself in order to re reveal his love to us fully in word and in sacrament. You know, he proclaims this love to us, what it is to be a human being in union and communion with God, shows us the way and the path to life, but then gives us the very means to live that in and through the Holy Eucharist. And I think, but a simple catechesis like this would you know, alter the way that, that many Catholics would approach uh, the, 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 the altar itself and how they would prepare themselves. You know, it's a sad fact that something so beautiful now uh, has even, you know, in, in so many ways has lost hold on uh, on Catholics in their faith, that there are many Catholics who don't see it f exactly for what it is, the real presence of the Lord and his love. So I don't know if that helps. Is that, would you want to add anything? That was perfect. Thank oh, you so much. Okay, you're very welcome. Sheila. Sheila, you're breaking my heart. Come on. <laughs> so I just have a short comment, but I, so when I learned this, I didn't learn that communion actually was a sacrifice, I guess, in a, in a real deep way until about 10 years ago when I started going to Black Mass. Um, you know, I always learned it was more of a, of, of a meal, you know, and I know that mm -hmm. comes together with Vatican II and people have different reasons for, you know, why it became that. But there's definitely a different way that you prepare for a sacrifice. Like if you were even to think of it just in your daily life, if you were to attend a sacrifice versus attending a dinner with somebody, you know, it really is a very different way you approach it, a much more vulnerable way, a much more sol solemn way, right. I, I think, instead of like, and, and I think it's, it's interesting because even my attitude towards certain things in mass has changed since approaching it that way, you know, so... For example, the sign of peace. You know, when you're attending a meal, you think, okay, I'm going to shake everyone's hands. Like, hello, how are you? Mm -hmm. But when you're at a, a sacrifice, you know, I almost don't want that engagement. 
you know, I really want to focus. And, and sometimes I, I think now I come off cold toward the people around me. I'm like, I'm like, focus on the sacrifice. Stay away from me. No, and, and that's not really great. Like I need to probably get over that. But I, well, it's hard though. You know, it's, cause it is a different thing. And I think there are mixed teachings on that, which makes it a little complicated. So, right. but, but nonetheless beautiful either way, but still, Yep. Mixed but your point so. is well taken. You know, it's the you know the way that we worship affects what we believe, and vice versa. And I think when the language is altered and in some ways removed, even it radically alters the way that we worship. And and even when we think about the what the meaning of that is in terms of our relations with each other. You know, when we have this clarity of Christ offering himself for us, allowing himself to be broken and poured out on the cross and breathes forth the spirit upon us as he breathes his last upon the cross, you know, marriage, which is a sacrament and a reflection of uh, Christ's love for his bride, the church, that this is what marriage makes present to the world and that there's grace in and through this mutual gift of self to the other. Uh, if that also involve, if a couple understand that that involves a dying to self of sin, of ego, a willingness to pour oneself out in love for the other, to make sacrifices on their behalf, that's going to shape their identity and also how they view their marriage. You know, if it's merely seen yes. as a party, as soon as that party or, or dinner gets boring, or one has had their fill, they're going to get up and leave. And I think that's what we see happening. I mean, when you alter, when you alter the theology of the mass, it also affects marriage. And why do we think that, you know, I've heard the numbers are pushing 70% divorce rate. And I don't know if that's accurate or not, but it's, it's, it's certainly left well above 50%. And, you know, we have to wonder you know, certainly if we've lost this essential connection in our minds and our hearts between Christ offer and gift of himself and then what we are to offer of ourselves uh, to each other. And the same thing for the breakdown in uh, the priesthood as well. You know, if, uh, you know, we've talked about Fulton Sheen, about how often he speaks of Christ as priest and victim. And that those who are ordained are ordained to be priest and victim. And you often hear about in seminary about being good priest. And often that's associated with making use of your talents and abilities and this and that. But nobody says you're being, you know, you're being ordained to be a good victim. You know, it's, it, I'd never heard that once in seminary. The first time I heard that was when I read uh, Fulton Sheen's book on the priesthood. And with the complete loss I think of the theology that is behind what Gordini is saying. It affects so much in terms of our understanding of, of the church itself, uh, of marriage, of the priesthood. It undermines so much. And we can see here that the, the catechesis that, uh, that Gordini offers is beautiful, substantive, accessible, and you know, this was written in the 1940s, prior to the Second Vatican Council. I mean, even if they handed out this book 
in every parish, you know, after the Second Vatican Council, it would have gone a long way, I think, to help us avoid the gross negligence that we've seen over the last 60 or 70 years. 60 years, I guess it would be, right? So, all beautiful. Should I go on? Okay. We're at the paragraph once more, is that correct? Yes. Somebody help me? Yep. Okay. Once more, it is essential for us to make distinctions. And this is, again, what, you know, words have meaning for Guardini, and making distinctions become uh, becomes important. You know, you often hear that phrase, the devil's in the details. Well, the, actually, the original quote is God is in the details. And, and I think we see this manifest in Guardini's text so often that it's in these details about what we believe and what God has done that we find God. You know, that when we enter into what Guardini is saying, in more than just an intellectual way, but in the way that we live our lives, it becomes something alive for us. We experience and encounter God in and through it, in and through these details. And, you know, so often they've been cast off as if they were meaningless, archaic, you know, an archaic way of expressing things. And I think after reading a few paragraphs, we see just, just the opposite. What we do in this area reserved for God does not spring directly from our religious experience or desire. Neither do we gather in church to express to God our pressing wants as though in response to a great general need. This too is possible and natural, and it belongs to the most powerful religious experiences that a man can have, the united appearance before him from whom everything comes and to whom everything returns. So it's a good and holy thing for us to gather together before God and to pray and to uh, offer our intercessions for our particular needs and the needs of the world. So he's not discounting the value and the importance of that. But the next few sentences, I think he expresses what's most important. What happens in Holy Mass, however, is different. The Mass is not the immediate creation of that power which shaped the word of praise and the revelatory act from the emotion of the hour but something long since independently arranged and ordered and declared valid once and forever. It does not arise each time from the individuals or the congregation's relation to God, but descends from God to the believer, demanding that he acknowledge it, entrust himself to it, and do it. It owes its existence not to Christian creativeness, but to Christ's institution. Or if they made every priest memorize this in seminary, it would have helped us avoid a lot of trial and experimentation and clown masses and polka masses and stealer masses or whatever uh, travesty might have been committed over these last couple of generations. But it's telling us that the mass has its origin in the very mind of God. And so... In a sense, the, the Mass exists from all eternity and is made manifest in and through the re revelation that comes to us in Christ, who institutes it uh, uh, in the life of the Church. 
which is an extraordinary thing to say. It, it tells us this doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from your need. It doesn't come from your creativeness. And so it's not something to be that's, that is reinvented week after week, uh, you know, that we have to make interesting or exciting. It's something that has been given to us by God, instituted, and that we are to fulfill it, acknowledge from whom it has come, and embrace it in how it has been given to us. And so our response to what we hear in the Gospels, uh, to what we hear in the writings of Paul, and what we find in the living church throughout the centuries, this is what we are to do as an act of obedient love. Obedience is really the, the, the return of, the, of, of love for what we've received. We've received, we've received this great gift of love from the hand of God. The, the Eucharist is instituted. Our response in love is to embrace the gift as it has been given to us. Not to say, gee, I think we could do this in a better way. And so we're going to alter and play around with this because we think it would be better if it's ex expressed in this fashion. You know, the church is essentially conservative. And by that, I mean that we conserve and preserve what has been revealed to us. We're not supposed to be engaged in this constant act of creativity, especially in the act of, of worship. We know what our worship is tied to explicitly, and that is the sacrifice of Calvary. And so our, the, the way that we pray is to be reflective of, of that reality out of, out of which the Eucharist comes to us. It's an outpouring of God's love in this perfect way given to us as our very food and drink in order to nourish us to everlasting life. And, and if we celebrate it in a way that does not reflect that, then we can see what will happen. There will be a loss of belief in that real presence as well as how it sanctifies us and, and brings us to a life of holiness. And so it demands that we acknowledge it, he says, and entrust ourselves to it and do it. So we're entrusting ourselves to a reality that we're saying that this is where, what we, where we find not only meaning for our life, but where we find life itself. And so we, we are in a sense, putting ourselves into the hands of God when we celebrate the Holy Eucharist as well. We are entrusting ourselves to him to allow him to shape us by the very gift that we receive. And so you know, we don't go up, and this is a problem often still today, we don't go up and take the, the host itself. We receive it. You know, in some ways, the best way on, on the tongue, because I think it, it shows that receptivity and vulnerability even in a greater way. But if we receive in the hand, it's to be a throne that we are making, you know, that we are expressing something clear in the way that we are receiving. We don't stick out one hand. We don't snatch it out of the hand uh, of the priest because then we're showing on some fundamental level, we don't really grasp what it is that we're doing or that we are humbly entrusting ourselves uh, to, to what we are given. That something holy 
and precious is being born into the world, just as at the incarnation. And we become God bearers. And so we are be, to be both like Mary, but also like Joseph. He's guardian and protector of what is holy born into the world. And so we are to be the guardian and protector of what comes to us in the gift of the Holy Eucharist, both in the way that we prepare ourselves to receive that gift, but how we, but in the very act of receiving it itself. And priests, most of all, are, are to be that in both ways, you know, both in the way that they receive it, but the way that they celebrate it and the way that they distribute Holy Communion, the guardian and protector of that which is holy. He can never do so in a haphazard way or neglectful way. In fact, a priest can be excommunicated for the abuse of the sacrament by not treating the, the Eucharist in the way that it is to be treated, you know, discarding it or the remains of, of host in an inappropriate way or doing something inappropriate with the Holy Eucharist or allowing it to be misused that uh, it's something that he can be excommunicated for and lose his very priesthood. So you see the strength in Guardini's words and the way that he expresses things here. In, in one simple paragraph, he captures it for us. And how, how we lost sight of this is, is beyond me. He continues this line uh, of thought in the next paragraph is specifically about the priest and priesthood. Consequently, the mass cannot be celebrated by anyone, but only by one who is authorized. When the father is still the recognized head of the family, also its spiritual head, he can institute a custom or celebration that becomes binding for the family. Likewise, the bearer of a religious office, the priest, or if he has spiritual authority, the king can institute a religious celebration for a certain diocese or kingdom. Religious history has countless illustrations of this, but the institution that concerns us here is valid not only for a family or a race or an empire, but claims to be the absolute norm of religious celebration the heart of spiritual life for all peoples and for all ages. No human being has the power to set up such a statute. No earthly authority has such power, absolute power, could ever exist, not even with the reservation that all genuine power comes from God. God never empowered any human being to institute an act obligatory for all people and all ages. So, you know, again, we get back to this understanding that the Eucharist comes from God himself, you know, in, in the mind of God from all eternity, made manifest to us through the perfect revelation of the Son. This is instituted for us, not in the way that we institute other celebrations or other religious practices. You know, this is something that has been instituted for all times and for all ages. And this tells us something, again, about uh, you know, the idea of making uh, swift or whimsical changes to how it is that we celebrate the liturgy. It's not as though that hasn't taken place. You know, al alterations over the course of time of certain elements, mu music, how music is done, wh or whatever it might be. 
but the fundamental reality of the Holy Eucharist itself and how how it was instituted by Christ cannot be changed. No one has the authority to institute something in such a way or to change something that has been instituted in this fashion. And, you know, in our day and age, you know, I think, again, you know, there's very little that is embraced as absolute truth and, you know, not relative and so not something that can be easily changed. And so when, you know, a a culture begins to, you know, deny meaning and absolute meaning, when it becomes nihilistic, then everything begins to break down, you know, certainly on a cultural level, but on a religious level, it's disastrous. And, you know, I think we see that certainly in the practice of religion. You know, when everything has equal meaning, then nothing has has meaning. I mean, I think this same kind of, you know, this view can express itself in many different ways and has over the course of, of recent times, especially. Uh, let me see here. That This does not mean that he could not have done so, but simply that he did not. He, did, he who did establish the unique universal institution of the Mass was no mere messenger of God, no prophet, high priest, or king, but the Son of the Eternal Father, God incarnate in history, who could save himself, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me, It is he who proclaims the saving truth to all men and to all ages, not as the prophets proclaimed it, thus speaketh the Lord. But I say to you, where the difference is accentuated again and again, he does not even say, my father speaks to you through me, but I myself, and he adds, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. At the close of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus declares that obedience to his words is the sole basis on which life capable of existing in eternity can be founded. All life founded on anything else will disintegrate under God's gaze. And this is what we were talking about earlier. You know, even if all that we do, we are seeking out, you know, to live a virtuous and good life. If we lose sight of what has been commanded us and given to us by God, and that we do all things under the sight of God and in obedience to him and what he's spoken to us, it disintegrates. Eventually it comes to nothing. And even if we don't see that immediately in our lives, or even or or at the, even to the passing of our lives. This is the reality. There is uh, Jesus does not speak as a prophet. He speaks as God Himself, and so in this sense, His word is absolute and true. And as He'll go on to say, there's a sovereignty that Christ has in all things, and it's the sovereignty that we have to embrace. For example, the miracles are worked without excitement or display. Jesus' calm, self-understood attitude toward them is that of one accustomed to doing whatever he wills. 
Everywhere in the Old Testament, God's self-revelation is sustained by his awareness that he is the Lord not only over things, but independently of things in his own right because he is who he is. Sovereignty is elemental to him. And this same sovereignty is in Christ. Not for nothing was the name reserved solely for God immediately applied to the Son, Kyrios Christos. It appeared with the ease with the ease of a foregone conclusion of necessity, since he actually was the Lord, whose sovereignty covers not only material reality, but also that which is immeasurably greater, the law and the covenant. When the Pharisees protest that Jesus' disciples are breaking the law by plucking ears of grain on the Sabbath, he replies, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, and with the Sabbath the entire law. At the Last Supper, he formally declares the Old Covenant fulfilled, and he proceeds to establish the new heart and mainspring of religious life, the Eucharist. So Christ acts with the sovereignty of God and as God himself. And it's for this reason that we can hear him say certain things in the gospel that many would seek to reduce to hyperbole uh, because they are so strong. Uh, let the dead bury their dead. You come follow follow me. Uh, it's one of my favorite examples of this because when we go back to the Old Testament and we th- think of Elijah calling Elisha and Elisha wants to go back and kiss his parents goodbye and Elijah says to him, who am I to you? Go do as you, you will. You know, Elijah was a man. He was a prophet of God, but he was a mere man. So he's not going to tell Elisha You fall into sin if you don't drop everything and follow me right now. But when Christ says, come follow me, the response we see in the the first of those called is that immediately they drop everything, their nets, their boats, they leave their father behind. And in fact, as Christ goes further on in his teaching, he begins to become more and more explicit about that sovereignty. Of, of leaving everything behind and, and including coming to the point of we hating all things in order to love Christ completely. That we're willing to let go of even what we would love in this world if Christ would call us, even our own self, he says, unless you hate father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, and yes, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. No prophet would ever say such a thing. It's Christ in his sovereignty that can demand that. Uh, Not because he's a dictator, but because he's God himself and the very source of life and love. And so anything that is sacrificed is returned to us beyond measure. Any comments on what we've been talking about here? or more specifically what Gordini has been talking about. Do you find him clear and helpful? I'm just sort of trying to get a sense. Okay, good. Furthermore, he says, we know exactly when and how he went about it. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe how Jesus, before his death, celebrated the Passover for the last time with his disciples. 
during the feast, whose celebration differed sharply from the traditional form. He instituted the new feast in his memory and the new covenant in his blood. St. John reports the speech Jesus made at Capernaum, where he promised men his Eucharistic flesh and blood. And then finally, Paul speaks of it in the 11th chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians, where he stresses the fact that the Lord himself revealed it to him. So in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have specifically Christ instituting the Holy Eucharist and establishing the, the new and eternal covenant. And being very clear in the Gospel of John, in the most powerful way, uh, telling us that unless we eat his body and drink his blood, we have no life within, within us. And we remember that explicit expression of his gift of himself in the Eucharist was so uh, abhorrent or so hard for some of his own disciples to understand that they broke company with him at that point. And, uh, and so we see something here being unique being established. What Jesus instituted then was ratified by God. Man has here no call to create or determine his task is to obey and act. Moreover, the institution itself is entrusted to a special authority for protection and guidance. So again, you know, how we do this and how we understand this is not up for us to create. We cannot create a new theology uh, of the Holy Eucharist. Uh, and I think this ties to the whole priesthood too. You know, the priest is the icon of Christ, acts in persona Christi in the celebration of the Eucharist. The question often arises why only the male priesthood and that it's patriarchal and that it's a matter of power. Well, you know, I for one can tell you that there's no power in the priesthood and usually you're getting yelled at by people and uh, dirty looks and things such as that. But, uh, you know, it's about, again, being priest and victim. But as an icon of Christ, you know, when you're, when you celebrate a drama, for example, you celebrate in such a way that it re reflects and expresses the truth. It's Christ who is incarnate male who institutes the Holy Eucharist. And so in this drama, this Rome, divine romance, he who acts in persona Christi, he who must be the icon of Christ, manifests himself, manifests in himself in every way, physically included, the, the one in whose person he acts. And, you know, I've often found that very helpful, but, you know, I think in our day and age, it's very difficult because we've turned the priesthood into an occupation. And we, we see that happening, not from the external world. I think it arose from priests themselves when all of a sudden acting as a priest was seemed no longer sufficient. They had to go out and make themselves, you know, professors of this or professionals in this or that area were, you know, somehow offering the holy sacrifice of the mass was not sufficient for the life of the church. They had to make themselves more proficient in some way or another in order to serve the church rather than celebrating the, the, the Holy Eucharist with love and, and devotion. And so within, uh, we find the, this uh, breakdown 
uh, you know, of the theology of the priesthood and with it the theology of the Eucharist and doing exactly what Guardini says. You can't create and determine your own theology around this or how it's to be celebrated. And again, love's response is always to obey and to act, to say yes and then to do as the Lord asks of us. You remember the gospel story, you know, who is better, the one who is asked by the father, you know, go do this and says yes and then doesn't go and do it, or the one who says no and then goes and does what his father asks. And they all say the one who says initially no and then goes and does what his father asks. Well, our response is to be that of neither son. Our response is to be that of the son of God. The one who says yes and then obeys. And so in our fundamental act of worship, in the fundamental act of our religion, our, our response is to do as Christ has told us. It's to imitate him in his absolute obedience to the Father. And so the, the way that we celebrate the Holy Eucharist should be reflective of the obedience and love of the Son himself. If we celebrate the Eucharist in a half-hearted, lukewarm way, or if a priest is morose and does not follow the rubrics and does whatever he wants, then it loses, the, the, the Mass itself loses uh, what it's meant to express on a fundamental, on a fundamental level. And so, you know, again, in a few short paragraphs, I think he destroys, you know, the, the, the whole notion that, you know, of the Eucharist simply being a meal and the altar simply being a table and that, you know, that how we celebrate it, you know, is simply to be a reflection of the times in order that people might understand it more fully and that we can take liberties in altering it. I mean, in a, a few paragraphs, he tells us, you know, that this is the, to do so would be a profound act of disobedience and a complete lack of love in doing that. Where it's like, it would be a kind of blasphemy, in fact, in sacrilege to do so. It would be like throwing the gift of God back in his face when we, we treat the Eucharist in such a way. And, you know, I'm not trying, I'm not trying to be a rad trad here, and I'm not, you know, uh, trying to be harsh, you know, in, in, in the same way that Guardini isn't being harsh. He's saying, this is what God has given to us. And what God gives us, we uh, are called to embrace and love and do as he wants us to do it. And to say no, or to take it into our own hands as if we are wiser than God, you know, is an act of sacrilege. And so we have to be very, very careful with, with how we treat and approach the Holy Eucharist. It is conceivable that the Lord could have instituted the mystery and then left it to the pious inspiration of the believers. Had he done so, it would have passed through history, formed and colored by the peculiarities of various governments, races, and epochs. The development of its central theme would have been handed over to the experience and creative powers of the believers. But this is not what Christ did. We see this happening, though. I mean, this is the what you know we're sort of up against in our own day and age. 
you have this whole chorus of voices telling us that it's legitimate to do exactly what what Guardini tells us is destructive. Sharon, you have to unmute yourself. I'm sorry. <laughs> there you go. I've never actually spoken during your courses, so this is a first Wow. Time. Listen up, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but this sort of struck a nerve with me a little bit only because uh, something's been on my mind for quite a while. Mm -hmm. uh, my husband and I, we've um, gone to the Divine Liturgy mm -hmm. a few times. Mm -hmm. And um, I think over COVID, this really started to strike me more mm -hmm. and more with regard to celebrating the Eucharist and re reception of Holy Communion. Right. And that is to say that in John, uh, the Gospel of John, when Jesus says, um, you know, that we ought to uh, eat mm -hmm. his body and drink mm -hmm. his blood, that word and, and I'm not trying to be a rad trad or legalistic in a sense, is in scripture. Um, and so I'm trying to understand, and I understand the teaching of, you know, the body, blood, soul, and divinity being mm -hmm. in both the, the host, the body of Christ right. and also the blood. Right. Um, but I'm really struggling with why um, the Roman Rite we don't we don't receive both. And I know during COVID, obviously they had to take away the blood. Um, but in the Divine Liturgy of the Eastern Rite, um, they are commingled, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And so I'm kind of struggling with the fact that um, what Gordini to me is saying is that we not we should not alter what you know Jesus kind of put forth and yet we do and in fact it's kind of a one or the other or both mentality and I don't know I grew up post Vatican II so right. um, I'm just not sure why that's the case well I think you expressed it beautifully theologically that it's been worked out for us and so we have no problem in understanding that both species contain the fullness of the Lord. And you articulated that well. And I think symbolically, we would say, though, that the fullest expression would be to be to receive both species. And I think the reason for the movement in the direction of receiving only one is somewhat utilitarian. And the number of communions to be distributed and, uh, uh, you know, I think partly, you know, one might argue that also it is to protect uh, the Holy Eucharist, that the possibility of spilling the precious blood is greater. Uh, that doesn't seem very convincing to me. Uh, certainly, and one understands it in taking communion to the sick, that uh, it's to transport simply a host to those who are hospitalized. But in general, in terms of our celebration of the of the Holy Eucharist, I think uh, in the East there's this understanding of really worship being, you know, at the heart of our life. And not that we don't believe that, but I think we've lost a sense of that. And so, again, in a kind of utilitarian fashion, we have this notion that Mass should be done in this timely way, and you know, not interrupt people's, the flow of people's lives, instead of our stepping into God's time, if you will, you know, of setting aside the watch 
and allowing ourselves to to worship as true believers and enter into this mystery. You know, Christ was on the cross for three hours, and so why can't you know? What's the problem with our liturgy lasting three hour three hours? Padre Pio was beat up and down about his liturgies lasting that long. You know, rebuked by bishops and told that he couldn't celebrate mass and uh, because his, and yet the mass the church was packed whenever he was saying mass. So it's not like it dissuaded people from coming. But I think there's this sense that, you know, of our piety in the West as being efficient. And I think that is a kind of a Western notion to of efficiency. Uh, you know, we see it reflected in so many different ways. And when we break out of that, even when our like internet speed slows down, we freak out you know, if we can't move at light speed. And I think that's true, you know, of worship, that as things have speeded up in the culture, you know, that life moves at this really fast pace and every, you know, we have cities that are awake all night long, you know, and and busy all night long, work never ceases. And so, you know, slowing life down, and spending this time and in fact dedicating the Sabbath to to God. I think we've really lost sight of that, of keeping the Sabbath holy. And with losing sight of that, we've moved more and more to a minimalist approach to the celebration of the Eucharist. And so we, we do it very quickly and to get people in and out. There's a uh, Polish pastor at one of the churches out where my, where my sister lives. It's since been closed and torn down. Uh, Bridgeville. It was right on Route 50. There was a little church. I can't remember what it was called. But he told the people, you know, the, the Eucharist is not fast food. It's not like you're driving up to a McDonald's and, you know, asking to be given your meal. And yet that's how people were treating it. You know, they received Holy Eucharist and then they were bolting out the door. So before the Mass is ended, before the closing prayer and blessing, the church empties out. It's half empty for people rushing to the parking lot to get into their cars. And so it's become worse and worse over time, including, you know, with preaching. If a priest preaches too long, then he'll hear about it, either through his pastor or through the bishop. And, uh, you know, and we always make this argument, well, previous generations had the capacity to listen for longer periods of time. Uh, even as recent times as Newman, John Henry Newman used to preach his uh, parochial and plain sermons that he preached as a Protestant were incredibly long and beautiful and developed and would have required an element of attention that people would argue in our time lack. And I, I think that's played out in our advertising everything. I have a cousin who uh, uh, runs a PR company, and I often see him post articles about that and about how advertising is to be done with the use of pictures, the limitation of words, you know, that allows the eyes to glance over something, to pick up a basic meaning. Because to expect people to read a paragraph or two is too much. They'll just pass it by. And even a lot of the things I post online, people will write 
was a TLDR, too long, did not, did not read. You know, so if you post anything over two, par two paragraphs long, you know, they, they pass it over in the thread. And um, so we're used to that. And it, I think it, it, it's expected in the West. And I think also in the Eastern churches here in the West, that's true. And when I talk to some of my Eastern Catholic priest friends, you know, one of the things that concerns them is that there is this expectation now that there's been so much Latinization that's taking place in their churches that the priests are expected to cut out parts of the divine liturgy in order to keep it to an hour. And it's like a knife in the heart for them because what they were ordained to do, if, if they celebrate the divine liturgy as it's supposed to be celebrated, again, they'll be reported uh, to the bishop. And often, you know, if, especially if these people are big donors, then the priest can lose his parish. You know, he can be removed for simply celebrating the divine liturgy is the way it's to be celebrated. And uh, so, you know, I think your, your point's well taken. You know, I think if we were to celebrate it and allow ourselves to celebrate it in such a way, then we would make the time for that. You know, I can understand in, in you know, like you said, in times of pandemic or flu season, but, you know, Eastern Rite people don't seem to worry too much about that. I mean, they, they distribute from the spoon and they're so artful at it that they can distribute communion without, right, touching it to anybody's uh, mouths. And I have one friend who will dip the spoon in like vodka, you know, to sterilize it, you know, during the pan pandemic, uh, you know, just to take extra precaution, but there's not the same concern. You know, we can become sort of paranoid in these kind of things. Thank you. Okay. You're welcome. Okay. Let's move on. Where did I leave off here? We're in this last paragraph on this page. Uh, boy, I'm sorry. I lost mine. Okay. But this is not what Christ did. He did not entrust his institution to the freely streaming spirit or to the religious inspiration of the moment but to an office which he himself established. He wanted his followers to live not as a loose collection of individuals with their sundry convictions and experiences, but as a constitutional unit, as a church. When he chose the apostles, he was already conferring office and authority upon the church. Amen, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound on also in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He who has ears... He who hears you, hears me, and he who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. That office was to continue through history, all days, even unto the consummation of the world. So a specific office is created uh, in order to conserve, to protect what has been revealed. You know, again, not to be this creative entity, but to pass on from generation to generation what has been received, what has been revealed to us, to pass on that truth, you know, both in terms of what has been taught, but how it is that we are to worship God. 
Consequently, the apostles were to have successors to whom that office could be passed. To this office, to the church, Christ's institution was entrusted. Her authority determines the form and details of the sacred service. Though it was, has adapted itself to the characteristics of peoples and periods during the course of the centuries, its core has remained the same, and it is the church that has kept it intact. The adaptations themselves sprang only partly from the differences of historical settings. The predominant cause for all modifications was the ecclesiastical office itself, which constantly act, I'm sorry, which constantly active, adapted, and rearranged details, yet preserved the efficacy and unity of the whole. So this office that has been created does not act in accord with its own identity uh, when it is not teaching with, you know, a kind of precise clarity. And, you know, especially the bishops and in particular the Holy Father are to articulate the, the fullness of, of the gospel and the fullness of that tradition with a kind of clarity and precision so as to avoid error. And, uh, you know, I, I've, I'm not, I don't want to speak against Pope Francis, but his style of teaching has often had this quality to it where it has been ambiguous at times that he'll preach without a text and off the cuff, or he'll say things in interviews on the airplane and things like that. And uh, it's been a source of consternation and confusion, uh, especially now that we have the media that spreads things at, at light speed and often will interpret it in accord with its own, uh, you know, with its own mind. And so in our day and age, how things are articulated, we have to even be more careful, one would say, because we know that it's going to be re repeated instantaneously. And so greater care should be taken. And I think even greater silence should be maintained. It would be good if, <laughs> I don't want to say this, it sounds flippant, but it would be good if, if the Holy Father and bishops and priests were more quiet than what they are, if they just kept their mouths quiet. You know, they're ordained, you know, for a particular reason to administer the sacraments uh, to proclaim the word of God, to pray. You know, they're, they're, they don't need to be speaking on every subject. They don't need to be giving movie reviews. You know, they don't need to be speaking about everything that's going on in the media. You know, the, the, they, they weren't ordained for that purpose and they aren't meant to be celebrities. You know, it's all, in fact, it's always a dangerous thing when a priest does become that. So two more paragraphs. The next I found to be very powerful. From this, we begin to see the attitude that is required of us. Faith, piety, and vital, vital participation. These are not to be shaped and guided solely by private experience and religious creativeness, nor are they to be given free reign. They are to be practiced in the spirit of acceptance and obedience. When believers attend Holy Mass, they go not to express their own religious emotion, nor to receive direction and inspiration from the spiritual talents 
of a man who enjoys their special trust. They enter into an order established by God. They go to participate in a prescribed service. So our piety is to be shaped by this reality, what has been revealed to us. And so what Gordini is telling us is that our piety and our mysticism is to be Eucharistic, sacramental. So our piety, our prayer life, our way of experiencing intimacy with God is Eucharistic because this is how God has manifested himself to us. This is how he's desired to give himself to us. And so our, our very spirituality is always to revolve around this reality. And so when you look at the great saints, whether it's Padre Pio or Philip Neri, their, their spirituality, their piety was rooted in the sacramental life of the church, especially the Eucharist. We see in all of them, you know, this great care in the celebration of the Eucharist, their willingness to pray all night in preparation for it. You know, Philip Neri would go into a mystic state when he was celebrating a private mass. The server would have to come in, ring a bell, blow out the candles, come back two hours later, relight the candles, and then Philip would f finish the mass. You know, this is a person whose, you know, whole self, all of his, his piety was rooted in the Eucharist and and all of his spiritual life was geared towards this vital participation in it. So again, you know, Guardini rips it out of, you know, this notion that, you know, this priest is to be this eloquent, you know, you know, preacher, entertainer, you know, one who's there to communicate to us in such a way as to inspire us. If we're not inspired by the reality that Guardini just articulated, there's something wrong with us. And how we've been catechized, how the way that we're living our, our, li li our prayer lives, it shows that we've not been formed and shaped by this reality that this is not our piety. And when it's not our piety, it's, it's, it's not what our piety revolves around, that's when we begin looking for other things and we begin demanding other things from the priest and from the church. Or when music becomes, you know, again, not something that helps us to transcend the self, but becomes a, a form of entertainment. And find the final paragraph here, criticism of liturgical details may be acceptable, but no matter how well qualified we might be for fundamental criticism or for religious self-expression, in all essentials, we must renounce both private desires and our personal disapproval. So when it comes to the Eucharist, the fact that the Eucharist is the center of our life as Christians, and that Christ has given himself to us in this way, that God chose to manifest himself into this way, to us in this way, that's not up for grabs. You know, this is how God has revealed himself to us and has chosen to enter into this intimate bond. And so it's not like we can say to ourselves, gee, I think if we worshiped in a different way, you know, it's the, you know that's the Protestant 
mentality. The first Protestants actually were in the gospel. They murmured in protest when he describes himself as, you know, being their food and drink. They murmur in protest. And so it's not something new. It goes all the way back to the beginning. And there can be a part of us that murmurs in protest when it comes to a lot of the things that we discussed in the St. Theophan group this past week about how to prepare ourselves, the, the, the nature of the fasting, the confession, the keeping ourselves from sin, the willingness after having received the divine mysteries to seclude ourselves in greater prayer and in order that that grace might bear the greatest amount of fruit within us. There would be many in our day that would murmur and protest about forming the mind and heart in such a way to receive the Holy Eucharist. This does not mean that the believer is placed under tutelage. It is simply a clarification of domains. Criticism is good where it makes sense. Criticism of the, of the mass makes none. So we can't criticize God. You know, God, couldn't you have revealed yourself in a way that was just a little bit more clear for us? You know, where we, 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 don't, we didn't have to think things through so much or prepare ourselves in this way. One can very well criticize the lightning, the lighting system of a city, but not the course of the sun. One can find fault with the arrangement of a particular garden, but not with the natural order of growth, bloom, and fruition. Here it is a question of something similar, only incomparably greater. The Lord's institution belongs to revelation and with revelation to creation itself. To see this is to possess the key to understanding creation. To accept it is the first step toward the sanctuary. So we understand that God has created all things in accord with his own wisdom and uh, his wisdom and understanding and with a, a view to our, our salvation and that creation is, manifests itself in a way and part of that creation is man but also man is redeemed in light of that reality and God in his wisdom chooses to manifest himself to us by taking on our flesh but also then becoming our food and drink offering us the flesh and blood that he took upon himself uh, in order to sanctify us. And so having a, a sacramental worldview that all of creation makes present to us the glory of God. And, you know, is the first step to understanding the incarnation and the first step towards understanding the Holy Eucharist. If you lack a sacramental worldview, then you're not going to get it at all. It was the first thing I, I saw as a Roman Catholic without understanding that. And it was in the expression of the Holy Eucharist itself, the way Mass was being celebrated, the, the way the, the students focused upon what was taking place at the altar. Everybody, it was like laser beam on, on the altar and what was going on at the altar, listening to the words of the priests, which were, were very specific. And so that whole group had a Eucharistic piety that as a Protestant stepping into that, I could see it, but it was like nothing I had ever experienced before in my faith. You know, I came from a Protestant background, so 
faith for me was something in, very individual, notional, you know, within the mind and, and the heart, but not sacramental, not something concrete, tangible, in, in the sense of encounter of God and receiving God's love or forgiveness, mercy, as we do in, in the confessional. This whole reflection is very important. I mean, I think you could read it over and over again, even as your Lexio Divina, and have it be something that's extraordinarily rich, that would help help you, I think, in your celebration of the of the Eucharist from week to week. It's so well, well written that way. Okay. Any final comments or questions on anything about? I'd like to make a comment. Okay. Um, this, uh, the second last paragraph, you know, from this we begin to see the attitude that is required of us, faith, piety, and vital participation. Right. This phrase, vital participation, was an interesting word choice mm -hmm. for me. Um, vital, life-giving participation. Mm -hmm. And I could see that kind of going in both directions, you know, God as the life-giver, right. and then us as giving our life back to God. Yeah, that's how I read it too. Good insight. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah that's that a meaning, meaningful sentence. With our full self, that our, our approach of the altar can't be, ha again, half-hearted or ill-prepared. That our, our whole being, we have to see it really is the most important thing that we engage in and experience in our life. For it to really tr and truly be what it, what it can't, is meant to be for us. Yes. Okay. Was that another Kristen? Yeah, and what what this all keeps coming keeps calling to mind um, is you know even even some some of the other sacraments and how those are perceived realities as well. Um, the one in particular that's coming to mind is you know recently there was a pronouncement that said that uh, baptisms given you know as we baptize you said I baptize you were. Uh, you know, uh, are invalid. Um, and that's actually been an occasion for me to kind of reflect on the nature of baptism and how it's, you know, it's really, you know, through those words, it's an action of Christ that's being converted, you right. know, and how, and just how important it is to, uh, to, you know, uh, follow the guideline you follow what has been uh, given so that, you know, the reality is properly received. Right. And, um, and, and I and I actually kind of appreciate you know when those uh, uh, when that clarity is offered, mm -hmm. um, you know because it, it offers that you know it, it provides mm -hmm. a uh, you know the occasion for deeper reflection on you know the realities behind these sacraments and what exactly is going on. So uh, that's another thing that's been coming to mind you know as we've been reading this entire section. Right, you know, great point. And you know why that arose? Because uh, you know we accept the baptism of other Christian communities, as long as there's proper form and matter. So water is used and baptism in the name of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as long as that is done, that baptism is seen as valid. But they were finding out that what we believed and accepted certain communities as doing in their baptism wasn't always the case. 
And so recently, if you were following Catholic news somewhat closely, there were a couple of priests that they found out were not validly baptized. And so they had to go back, baptize them, and go through the, the process of ordination. Again, because it made it invalid. Their baptism weren't valid. And uh, so... You're right. I mean, it's good when those clarifications come, both in terms of our understanding of what's taking place, uh, but it also shows us, you know, the we can't again be sort of fast and loose with that understanding, you know, that or accepting without examination that uh, what was done really took place in accord with, you know, our understanding of the faith and of the sacramental life. Anthony or Andrea, one of you. <laughs> yes, Father, this is uh, this material is really so beautiful, mm -hmm. and uh, I didn't uh, really know any of this, and it just shows that you know, um, if if we know this, and actually on a on a mm -hmm. deep level, with the, in the heart, um, that it truly, you know, our life even here becomes uh, uh, heaven. Um, um, so I just, I joined the church recently, you know, my, I wasn't catechized much, you know, I, so it's my fault. It's not like I really tried hard, you know. Um, so I just wanted to, uh, to comment that, you know, I, for example, I, I um, you were talking about celebrity priests. Uh, I'm thinking Father Mike Schmitz, um, Bishop Barron. Um, I have found them very help, helpful. Um, I know so little about things mm -hmm. that uh, they are being part of public life and commenting mm -hmm. on things that, uh, that are happening outside the church mm -hmm. from the church perspective mm -hmm. has been invaluable for me. And uh, for example, um, if they were to exit, I, I would feel that we would lose, we would lose a lot. We, we do want um, priests, representatives of Christ, to um, to comment on uh, things that are going on in the world, because they can provide that kind of in between between mm -hmm. world and church, right. and it is very important to have that exactly because our own knowledge, um, mm -hmm. the lady, you know, many people we just know so little. Um, I just find that their voice is truly is invaluable right. also the, the, yeah. you know in point, god's point, kingdom church sure. they have a very important role as well yeah. point well taken and you know sometimes i over in my zeal i overstate things uh they're both very good teachers there's no doubt about it and have had enormous impact upon so many catholics uh in articulating the faith and they do it so well uh but I think the point that I was trying to make is, is not what the, the priest is ordained to do in, in the sense of be, becoming a public figure. There shouldn't be within him this desire or feeling that he has to strive to, you know, be this great communicator. And if he has those natural gifts or God gives them to him, like the Fulton Sheen of past generation would be an example of that. But I think, my thought behind it is that there's always a kind of danger in that to the priest. That, 
you know, to become a public figure, you know, you also become the object of public scrutiny, but the, the scrutiny of the evil one to, to bring down one who is a popular and public figure within the Catholic Church, in particular a priest, uh, you know, is an incredibly destructive thing. And so if there is someone that we admire or who does have those abilities, it would be one that we should really be praying for and offering, you know, personal sacrifices for that God would protect them. And if a priest finds himself in that kind of position, you know, that he should be, you know, praying and clinging to God, knowing, uh, you know, that there is a kind of danger in that as well, of pride, of self-esteem, uh, where he can lose sight of, of God and the grace of God and his own poverty and need for repentance and become to rely upon his own gifts and talents. And, there, and so there have been multiple, you know, from the beginning of time, multiple individuals, but uh, in more recent times, I think it's become even more danger with the advent of, you know, the internet and uh, the media, you know, in various forms where those who have become very popular and were great teachers, that there often then was a great fall that brought, you know, disillusionment to many, to many people, you know, that whatever gain was gained, whatever gain was made through their abilities and their teaching uh, was lost, you know, in greater measure through either the loss of their priesthood or the loss of the faith of those who trusted in them as individuals too greatly rather than placing their trust in Christ. And so I'm gl glad you brought up the corrective there because I, I don't think we would want to diminish genuine gifts that God has given to particular priests and those who are doing good work. But I think even as we acknowledge it, we have to acknowledge that there can be a, a danger there for them and that we would want to pray for them even more. Because I agree with you, but they're both, you know, very gifted teacher, teachers of the faith and have done a lot of good for people. But we wouldn't want to see them lose that. We should probably, we're past time in good, good 10 minutes, Eric. I'm sorry to cut you loose here. If you, you could leave the comment in, in the chat section if you'd like, but we should probably stop with our prayer here and uh, I'm sorry for going on so long, but uh, all, you know, very wonderful questions and comments tonight. And, and I hope the reading was a blessing for you. I know it was, has been for me. Okay. So when we close as always with our prayer in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit. Amen. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thank you, guys. Have a great night. Okay. Have a good week. God bless you. See ya. Go to bed now.
He kept me up past my bedtime. <laughs> okay, take care. Thank you. Bye bye.